Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago President Austin Goolsby wants to see more inflation-easing data before the September rate decision. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about local housing market news, including how Chicago-area home sales had their biggest spring this year since 2008. Well, what Tracy Cross found is that new home sales in the second quarter of 2023 were up 38% from the same time a year ago. And they were up the same time a year ago from the year before that. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, August 3rd. Want some wins? Wintrust Community Banks is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in personal banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. That's one win, and that's for the second year in a row. That's a win-win. And you can now earn even more interest with Wintrust's new savings rates. That's a win-win-win. To get your savings some wins, visit Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. That's Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2020. Award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis, how's it going? Great, Amy. It's going great. How are you? Are you enjoying summer? I am. I am. I'm I am wired for summer, so I'm all in for summer. And I like soak it in because my February self will thank me later. Same. <laughs> totally the same. 100%. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the stories. There are many of them. Let's start by talking about how Chicago area new home sales had their biggest spring since 2008. This is interesting data that comes from Tracy Cross and Associates. You and I talk about them. I write a story about them just about every quarter because uh, this Schaumburg-based organization tracks home sales, new home sales per quarter. These are production homes, so they only look at uh, homes that are sold, homes in developments of 10 houses or more. So the onesies and twosies built on individual lots in the city, those don't generally show up anyway. Spring 2023, second quarter 2023, there were more new homes sold by production builders in the Chicago area than any spring since 2008. And you know from our past discussions, 2005, 6, 7, 8, that was the height of new home building in the Chicago area. There were uh, tens of thousands of homes sold each year, new homes sold each year at the time. Big trough for years after that, but the COVID housing boom sort of brought things back up, some, not a lot. And one of the things that's really been affecting new home sales in the second quarter of 2023 was the lack of inventory of existing homes. What both the um, head of Tracy Cross and a couple of representatives of the industry, I spoke to a developer, I spoke to a real estate agent, they all said that one of the things that's going on here is, as you and I have discussed, the inventory of homes for sale is very low. There are a lot of reasons for that. One is that most people have a, a mortgage in the threes, in the sub 4% range, and to, buying a new house, they'd have to go to a mortgage at the over six range. That's holding a lot of inventory off the market. But if I need to find a house, I need to find a house. So if there's very little inventory of existing homes, I would turn to new homes. Um, you and I talked, I think it was last week, about the effect that's had in Linwood in South Cook County, where there has been a real run of new home sales. Well, what Tracy Cross found is that 
New home sales in the second quarter of 2023 were up 38% from the same time a year ago. And they were up the same time a year ago from the year before that. This was, as we said, the strongest spring since 2008. And what's interesting is sales were way down in the first quarter. Um, the, the increase in the second quarter was so good that the half came in just below uh, the first half of 2022. But the point there is in that first quarter of the year, there was a lot more uncertainty. There was a lot more interest rate shock. And buyers may not yet have said, oh, wait a minute, I can't find any new houses. I can't find any existing houses on the market. Let's go look at the new house market. So uh, sales were down quite a bit in that first quarter and then popped up in the second, which I think is uh, sort of an interesting, a, a fascinating response to the climate we're in right now. That's exactly right. What might that suggest going forward? Does that have any bearing on kind of what the rest of the year might look like or anything like that? Well, one of the problems is um, while there is a tight inventory of existing homes for sale, there is also a very tight inventory of new homes for sale. So it's not as if they can say, oh, wow, we had so many sales. Let's like build a whole lot faster and get a bunch out there. So they can't really fill the as much of the inventory gap as you might like. But one of the things that Eric Dorshing, the head of Tracy Cross, pointed out is finally, um, there are most of our home building is by national home builders, not by local privately held um, home builders. And many of them are several of them, sorry, and several of those national firms started new developments in the first half of 2023. That hadn't been going on. There'd been very few new developments starting. So what Eric Dorshing told me is this might mean that going forward through the end of the year and even into 2024, we may see that new homes are helping to fill that inventory gap and that sales continue at a pretty strong pace. Well, we will, we will have to revisit that later in the year and see where all of that stands. Let's move to, because it's been a few weeks since we've actually mentioned Ken Griffin on the podcast. So <laughs> let's talk about um, his condo sell-off. Apparently not going super well. I think I teased you about this at the end of last week's podcast because I was sort of neck deep in the research at the time. Uh, so last week was a year since Ken Griffin put four condos on the market, each priced at over $10 million. He had just prior to that in June 2022, he had made the announcement, um, you know, moving both personally and professionally to Florida. And um, not too long after that, put a portfolio of four condos on the market. Later this year, uh, put a fifth on the market. So five condos priced at a total, uh, or when you add the individual prices up, it's over $63 million dollars in five condos he had on the market. Um, so I, how's that going a year later? I took a look at the store scorecard and found that he has sold two. We've reported on those as they've sold. So with $63 million worth of condos on the market, he sold $21.4 million worth, two of them. Um, still has about $42 million to sell. There's a little bit of um, gray area there because one of those condos is no longer on the market. I don't know why, because his agents won't talk to me. And I did check to see if we could get comment from Ken Griffin and didn't get any. 
Um, so we don't know. That one has not changed hands, but it's no longer on the market. So I don't know exactly what's going on there. Um, and he also has at least two that he hasn't yet put on the market. So a year after putting uh, four and then later putting a fifth on the market, he's sold two. Um, and one of the things I looked at, this is something we actually talked about, you and I talked about at the time he first put those four on the market. Does this look like sort of a vote of no confidence in the downtown condo market? At the time, he had reason to be confident because um, there had already early that year been two condos sold um, at more than his asking prices. One was sold at 20 million and one at 17 million. So it looked like things were in downtown Chicago. So it looked like things were going his way. Things would sell. Um, but uh, then the condo market really slowed down. The downtown condo market really slowed down. We've seen big sales, but we haven't seen the year ended last year with two sales over $20 million. Um, and we just haven't seen it. So I checked with some agents um, and said, you know, what, what does this look like? And they said, it really looks like he said, you know, I'm done in Chicago. You can have these. First of all, they were nearly every one of the ones he put on the market, he put on for less than he had paid for them. Um, and the ones he has sold, he has sold for less than he paid for them, uh, which looks like, you know, a signal that, yeah, it, this was not a great investment. Um, and so what a couple of these agents said is not only did, is he as sort of an influencer of high net worth people saying, uh, Chicago condos may not be a great place to put your money. But another thing that has changed in that year is that the perception of the crime situation has worsened. Whether crime has worsened, we don't, we're not getting into, but the perception of the crime situation has certainly spread farther. And um, one agent said to me, the people who would buy a $12 million condo are less likely to because they're waiting to see, is Chicago going to get cleaned up? Remind me, weren't some of these condos connected or hadn't he purchased them and then made them into one unit? Yes. Uh, so the, the four condos he put on the market were in three different buildings. He has multiple holdings in the Park Tower on Michigan Avenue and in number nine, Walton. Uh, he also has a condo at, at um, another building on Walton Street, the Waldorf Astoria. Um, the, at number nine, Walton, he bought four floors at the top. And we reported on that at the time. That was about $58 million worth of purchases in, uh, I don't have it in front of me. I think it was that late 2017 and we reported it in January, 2018 um, and never did finish them off. The idea was here's this, you know, four story penthouse in the sky with, I think it, the pool was on the top floor. And we learned when he put them on the market last year, I confirmed that he actually never did finish off those spaces, which makes it easier to sell them one at a time, right? I don't need to buy a four-story penthouse that somebody paid $58 million for as raw space. I might buy one piece of it for $12 million and then, and somebody else might buy a piece of it for $12 million. So yeah, there were several that were, that were connected there. So far, they appear to be being offered individually. Up there in that end of the market, let's talk about this Winnetka mansion that has sold for $12.5 million, the highest home price so far in 2023. Beating only Ken Griffin. Um, there was an $11.2 million sale. One of those he sold, sold in January at $11.2 million. 
This is a really interesting one. We just talked about it within the last few weeks on the podcast because it came on the market in June. What I said in, in the latest story is that 46 days elapsed between it going on the market and the sale closing. That's, that's pretty fast for a multi-million dollar house. That's pretty fast for any house. Really nice place on the lakefront on Sheridan Road in Winnetka. Uh, I wrote about it back in 2016 when it sold for $5.35 million. And one of the interesting things I find when I pull up that story is it was sort of a red-brown brick house at the time. Now it's a white painted brick house. They made a lot of other changes. We, I think we talked about these when it came on the market. Um, really beautiful house, open sort of a look inside, very kind of coastal decor, big pool outside. But they put it on the market at $12.85 million in June. It went under contract pretty quickly and it just sold for $12.5 million. Highest price of the year so far. And as I said, higher than Ken Griffin's sale at $11.2 million. I don't know these people's name. Um, they owned it through uh, a trust that concealed their name in the public records. But it's a pretty interesting property. And when you see the pictures in the story, you see it's a really beautiful place. It's the way, it's the way I think we all dream of living on the lakefront of Winnetka. Uh, right. Those of us, as opposed to people who do that, there's those of us who dream of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and see those pictures and, and photos of all these houses that we're talking about today. Um, well, speaking of Winnetka, there's another house there. Uh, an SC Johnson executive has bought a $4.15 million house also in Winnetka. Right. $4.15 million seems like a lot, but it's one third the price of the house we were just talking about. Uh, this is an interesting one. Newly built so we didn't have photos of it for the story. There were no photos in the listing, but a man named Rudy Wilson, who's the global president of consumer brands at SC Johnson, pretty high level person, paid $4.15 million for this newly built house in Winnetka with his wife. It's interesting because I couldn't get him to comment. I tried. SC Johnson, as many people know, is based in Racine, which is almost 60 miles north of Winnetka. S.C. Johnson also has a Chicago office. As far as I could tell from the little bit I got on the phone is his office is in Racine, but he lives in Winnetka. It's a very nice house. Uh, as I said, newly built by Heritage Luxury Homes, which as we've talked about in the past is this couple, Leo and Milena Birov, who are very prolific builders of houses on the North Shore, uh, of teardown houses. And I did look what they took down in this case to build this one was sort of a, a somewhat prairie style house from 1915. Well, hopefully eventually we have photos of this house, but as you said, since it's new, not much to show for now. There are definitely photos of this next house though, and it is a pretty unique house. This is a house in Barrington Hills that has been transformed into a castle. Tell me about this place. You know, and this one, I thought the story was adorable when the man told me that, uh, so they buy a foreclosure in, in Barrington Hills uh, in 2010. The man, the man tells me now the facade was basically falling off. The house needed a lot of work. He's a general contractor and a heating air conditioning contractor. And he's trying to figure out what to do with it. And his, again, this is 2010. His four-year-old daughter basically says, I want to be a princess living in a castle. And so he takes that and turns the house into a castle, which to me 
is kind of an adorable thing to do. The house has very sweet. turrets and crenellations and, you know, the places where you'd stand with your arrows or your pots of boiling oil to dump on invaders. <laughs> Throw on your enemies. <laughs> exactly. And and it's on six acres, so the enemies have to cross a lot of ground yeah. before they get to you and your pots of boiling oil. I thought it was a very cute story what he had done. Um, and oh, and I should say before we go on, and now they've put the house on the market. It's 13 years later. His daughter, who was four years old at the time, Abby, is now older. Uh, the family of four, there's also a son, are moving to Florida. So they've put the house on the market for $1.9 million. You know, and when a castle comes on the market, I have to write about it. We've done stories on castles in Bridgeport and Schaumburg, Downers Grove, Oak Brook. And this one I thought was cute, you know, because it, the man does it because he, his child would like to be a princess. Did you see the number of people on, on Crane's Facebook page or on Twitter saying, oh, my God, he's, his daughter is spoiled. She's going to want to wear a fur coat to kindergarten and those I kinds did. of things. <laughs> I was I so surprised. I thought... How cute, you know, but oh, no man will ever live up because daddy created a castle. I was really surprised by how people responded. I mean, to me, it was just, I've already said cute about six times, but to me, it was a cute story. It's very sweet that he he thought, you know, why not? Right. It, yeah. I think it's very easy to dismiss a child's, you know, whims like I want to live in a spaceship or a castle or whatever, but that he had the ability to make that happen and did. I think that's very sweet. Yeah. And, you know, you're and if that the... means she has very high standards for future partners, that's actually, I think, a positive, that's actually... not a negative. <laughs> An excellent point. An absolutely excellent point. Right. Well, again, there's photos at ChicagoBusiness.com. Uh, let's talk about a house in the Villa District that is for sale for the first time in 57 seven years. Yeah. You know, the villa is a, is a really wonderful area for people who don't know. It's basically, it's a triangle. The uh, eastern corner would be Avondale and Addison, just west on Addison, just west of the Kennedy um, is this wonderful neighborhood built in the early 1900s. Lots of arts and crafts houses, several of them bungalow sized, some of them bigger. Um, really just a, a great old historic district. And um, this house is one of the larger ones in the neighborhood, built in 1913. And it's been in one family's hands for 57 years. The woman who's selling it moved in as a two-year-old when her parents bought it. Um, she apparently didn't say, I want to be a princess in a castle. I want to be a castle <laughs> or I want to have a castle. Exactly. We're just going to live in this villa. Um, but she has kept the house, her parents first, kept the house in uh, mostly original condition. And then she has continued that. And it's it's just a really nice house. First of all, it's on a big lot. It's by uh, a pretty important architect of the era, Clarence Hatzfeld, who built, who designed about 20 houses in the villa, but also several of the prettiest field houses in Chicago parks. And this house is really nice. It's got, uh, you've seen the pictures, Amy, you come in through sort of a pergola entrance you go in and there's and the fireplace bookcase doorway composition is this just wonderful space with sort of a, a tiled fireplace flanking bookcases and then flanking those bookcases are two doorways. And it's just, it's so nice. It's so 1913. Lots of 
wood banding on the interior and built-ins. And, and one of the built-ins that, that fascinated me most is um, there's a butler's pantry, really nice wood-lined pantry where you would have in 1913 had your china and your silver and all that kind of stuff. And so what the seller told me, again, her, her parents bought it when she was about two. And then in the 2000s, when she and her husband and their kids were living there, they're uh, going to update the kitchen and they're bringing in contractors. And she said the the butler's pantry was essentially a litmus test because if a contractor came in and said, well, okay, so the first thing we do is we get rid of this pantry and we get you more space for the kitchen. She said, anybody who said that went on the do not hire list because those people, (laughs) those contractors clearly don't get the look of the old house. They don't respect the heritage. Um, So, you know, what they ended up with is not a huge kitchen, but it's a nice kitchen and it picks up a lot of the materials from the original house. And then they have a butler's pantry. How much do you use a butler's pantry in today's age? Do you have, you know, uh, boxes of silver and china and all that? I don't know, but you still have that original feature of the house. Um, And I just like the way it acted as a litmus test for contractors. Right. I love the story attached to that. Yeah, that's really great. And they have a lot of other stories about, you know, family members getting married there and that sort of thing. It's very much, I mean, the villa feels like a, a small town within Chicago. And and this is this, this house really sort of exudes that. And I don't think I said they're asking just under $1.6 million. Uh, this house is on a very large lot. It's on the equivalent of 3.6 city lots, a city lot being 25 by 125. This is on three and a half of those. Yeah, again, head to chicagobusiness.com for the photos of this house because it's really a a very charming property for sure. Well, speaking of a house with history though, the house where Carl Sandburg lived when he first wrote that Chicago is the city of big shoulders, it recently sold. It did, yeah. So we talked about it when it was on the market and um, I was glad, I was hoping that somebody would buy it who you know, sort of got the history. The sellers got the history. They had uh, bought it when it was still a two flat. Carl Sandberg and his wife Lillian and their daughter lived there in 1912 when it was it was a, a, an apartment building at the time, a two flat at the time. They lived on the second floor, still a multi flat building. When these sellers bought it in in 2010, they rehabbed it into a single family home. They made the interior pretty contemporary, but they made they kept the exterior looking the way it would. In fact, they took it back to the way it would have looked when Carl Sandburg lived there. They appreciated the history. They appreciated the historical look of the neighborhood. And so they stripped off um, vinyl siding, put up wood siding uh, in colors that were appropriate to the era. So the sellers got it. Would the buyers get it? And so when this thing, uh, when this house sold for 2.25 million late last week, uh, I got in touch with the buyers, their agent said, sure, they'd love to talk to you. And I was really happy to hear from them that uh, while they bought the house because it has, you know, all the space they need and a nice yard and all those kinds of things, they did say the history actually informed their purchase decision in part because they looked at a lot of houses that really had, you know, no soul. And this one obviously has a soul because so much of its historical detail is, is still there. But also, they get the Carl Sandburg connection. So as you said, this is where he wrote, this is very early in his um, career, he wrote the poem that describes Chicago as city of the big shoulders, hog butcher to the world, stacker of wheat, 
et cetera, a, a, an image that really still clings to Chicago's self-identity. And they said that they really liked that. They said they were grateful to be able to live in a house where something so great happened that they're fans of Sandberg because uh, they like the fact that he wrote about the working class, which really built Chicago and defined Chicago. And they also said um, that as attorneys, they're often, they're both attorneys, they're often up late writing. And they like the fact that they'd be writing in the same place where Carl Sandburg, after a day of newspapering, would have sat and written the poetry that ended up making his fa- making him famous. So I was just really glad to know that one of Chicago's great literary landmarks was sold to people who get it. Yeah, who appreciate that. Right. I love that. So he he will probably haunt them very little because they appreciate him. Yeah, he or haunt them in a good way. Right, you know, he'll be a helpful yeah. ghost. <laughs> yeah, guide their writing in a really good way. Right, you lost your keys here. I'll, I'll help you find them. I know where you put them. Exactly. <laughs> He's like that kind of ghost. <laughs> All right, well, um, another house with a, with a personality attached to it. Um, that is a River North house um, that is being sold by a former bear. Matt Forte, yeah, and his wife, Danielle. They bought, so this is in that area called Kingsbury Estates, which is sort of, it's essentially kind of Northwest River North. Over by where Juanita Jordan had a house, right? Or a townhouse that we talked about. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. This is that neighborhood. As that neighborhood has developed over the years, a lot of high-level people have had had houses over there, all $4 million or more. Juanita Vinoy, uh, formerly Juanita Jordan, Jonathan Brandmeier, DeMar DeRozan of the Bulls, Jimmy Butler of the Bulls. There is... Uh, a piece of the founding family of Amway, all with houses over there, and Matt Forte, uh, who with Danielle paid a little over $4 million in 2014 for a house um, that I then reported it wasn't quite big enough for them. It was a 9,000 square foot house, and we reported on them adding 1,000 square feet to it. So it's a 10,000 square foot house now, and they just put it on the market for $4.75 million. Matt Forte played for the Bears from 2008 to 2015. And then, I love this, played again for a single day in 2018 or joined the team again for a single day in 2018 so he could retire as a, as a Bear. What their real estate agent told me is that they are going to keep a presence in Chicago. I don't know if that means buy another house, rent something, what. But um, they've got this one on the market for $4.75 million. All right. Well, we will have to circle back on that one when when it finds a buyer. So what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? You know, Amy, I have a couple of different stories about renting. Uh, one is about just how dynamic the extreme upper end of the rental market is. And the other is about a parking garage that was turned into an apartment building. Wow. That's not a thing you hear very often. All right. As far as I know, it's a thing you've heard only once. (laughs) Just now. And that was this very second. In Chicago. Right. Right. All right. Well, we will meet back here this time next week and talk all about that and more. Thanks so much, Dennis. Great. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a hiring surge lifts United past its pre-pandemic peak headcount. We'll talk about that and more right after this. (laughs) 
Do you know a leader, a visionary, an influencer, an innovator? Do you know a Titan? Join the ranks of Chicago's Titan 100, a new exclusive community for C-suite executives. Stand up and be recognized and tap into the power of a growing national network. Learn more, nominate someone, or apply today at whipfleecom slash Chicago Titan. That's WIPFLI.com slash Chicago Titan. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Bloomberg reported that Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago President Austin Goolsbee said that while recent data gave him hope that inflation can cool without too much pain in the economy, he'd like to see more of a trend develop before the central bank stops raising interest rates. Officials have slowed the pace of rate increases following aggressive action to tame an annual inflation rate that reached a 40-year high last year, but delivered a quarter-point increase at their July meeting. Two reports released last month showed a cool-down in price growth, especially in components of inflation that hadn't shown much progress in the past few months. But as Bloomberg noted in reporting, one or two good reports are not likely enough to placate officials, who were spooked when inflation slowed down during the early months of summer last year, only to accelerate again in August and September. Bloomberg quoted Goolsby as saying, I don't like pre-committing what we are going to do in September, adding, quote, when you're around the transition point, every meeting is a live meeting and you're trying to figure out trends, not just reflect one month's data. A voter on monetary policy this year, Goolsby supported the Fed's decision to raise rates to a range of 5.25% to 5.5% at the July 25th and 26th meeting, following a pause in June. The central bank has raised rates by 5.25 percentage points since March of 2022, including four jumbo-sized 75 basis point hikes last year. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that key to his outlook, Goolsby said, is how core goods inflation evolves. That category includes everything from used cars, which had been a significant piece of inflation, to clothes and furniture. Before the pandemic, it was a drag on overall prices, but the buying frenzy during periods of health and safety measures and subsequent supply chain issues drove up such costs substantially. Goolsby said he's also looking at housing inflation, which has slowed down a bit in the last few months and is expected to decelerate more substantially later this year and into 2024. Bloomberg also noted that Goolsby also cautioned against making too many comparisons to prior periods of high rates of inflation, which some economists do to reason that the Fed won't be able to bring down inflation without significant job losses. Goolsby arguing that today's conditions are extremely different. Caterpillar added further confirmation of China's downtrodden economic outlook, saying sales of its key machines used on construction sites across the world's second-largest economy is even worse than the company forecast about three months ago. Bloomberg noted in reporting that CEO Jim Umpleby said during Tuesday's earnings call that the company anticipates further weakness in sales of the machines most used for Chinese construction projects. The view follows the CEO's downbeat comments on April 27th, when he said the total share of sales from China would be below its normal expected range of 5 to 10 percent. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that a raft of economic data from China has indicated that the country's rebound from pandemic-related closures has been taking longer than anticipated. 
Bloomberg reported that almost a dozen former Tesla workers who left to work at Rivian Automotive can't avoid a trial over claims in a trade secret suit that they breached Tesla confidentiality agreements before they joined its rival. Rivian's manufacturing plant is in downstate normal. A state court judge on Wednesday tentatively denied the workers' request for a summary adjudication ruling, which would have dismissed Tesla's claim that they had signed agreements and other contracts that forbade them from disclosing proprietary information to competitors. The judge granted the workers' request for a ruling on another claim by Tesla that the workers illegally accessed the company's computers to copy and steal the data. Bloomberg noted that the ruling, if finalized, would allow the breach of contract issue along with the key claim in the legal battle that Rivian and the former workers violated California's trade secret laws to proceed to a trial. Tesla claimed in its lawsuit filed in July of 2020 and revised in 2021 that Rivian had directly hired at least 70 of its former workers, some of whom they described as having been, quote, caught red-handed, stealing the core technology for its next-generation batteries. Bloomberg noted that Rivian has denied any wrongdoing and says Tesla's lawsuit is an effort to thwart competition in the electric vehicle market. United Airlines' hiring binge has resulted in the airline now having more workers than at any time in nearly a decade. Crane's John Pletz reported that the company's headcount was just shy of 100,000 workers on June 30th, up 8 percent from the end of December and exceeding its peak staffing level of 96,000 workers before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the airline now has just under 17,000 workers in Chicago, most of whom are assigned to its home base at O'Hare, with nearly 5,000 more at its headquarters at Willis Tower. The airline's headcount is 34 percent higher than it was at the pandemic low point at the end of 2020, reflecting the dramatic rebound in air travel since the pandemic has eased. Airlines have been able to raise prices faster than costs have risen, and they've been challenged to staff up to meet demand. Pletz noted in reporting that just three years ago, carriers were struggling, requiring billions of dollars in federal funding to keep payrolls intact. United warned during the early depths of the pandemic that it was going to reduce white-collar jobs by 25 percent, some of them permanently. The company also reduced its office space at Willis Tower. Many airlines offered buyouts to workers to cut costs and help them survive the pandemic, but they have since struggled to hire enough workers to accommodate the dramatic rebound in travel that started last summer. At the same time, carriers are being hit hard by a wave of baby boomer retirements that started before the pandemic. Pletz also reported that hiring overall is up across the industry. Headcount in May was approaching 500,000 workers, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, which is 11 percent higher than the same period in 2019. United has hired more aggressively than other airlines, adding almost 1,200 new workers in May, compared with just over 950 workers each at both American and Delta. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.